Well, we are continuing our series in 1 Peter, so if you've got a Bible with you, I'd love to invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, and this is really going to be part one of a sermon, um, uh, a sermon, well, yeah, I guess next week will be part two of the same sermon, but looking at what is Christian freedom, what does it look like to live as free people in Christ, and to really understand what what. Peter is saying about the nature of freedom, we're going to take two weeks to look at this passage. We're going to take kind of a high-level view at uh, look at what is freedom biblically um, this morning, and then next week we'll dive into some of the more practical application of this uh, passage. But let me um, ask you to stand with me this morning, and we are going to give our attention to God's Word. 1 Peter 2 starting at verse 11. Peter says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's word. You may be seated, please. A couple of weeks ago, I heard an incredible story about a song that was uh, the anthem or maybe even the cause of freedom around the world. This song was uh, recorded by a band called the Scorpions, a band that um, if you recognize it all is uh, we would call it like an 80s hair band, like big, loud, kind of light metal, lots of hairspray. 
you might not be super familiar with the Scorpions. They're actually a German band, but they sang in English, but uh, were massively popular in Eastern Europe, in, in, uh, in Japan, in Brazil, in South America. Uh, the song, if you've recognized any other songs, you would surely recognize the song Rocky Like a Hurricane. Okay, that's, that's who we're talking about when we're talking about the Scorpions. Um, the Scorpions were this band in the 80s and 90s, and because they were from Germany, um, they, um, they, they had this opportunity in the late 80s. They were one of the first Western bands to play behind the Iron Curtain in the USSR. And in 1989, um, when the Soviet government saw rock and roll as threatening to communism, the Scorpions went with a couple other bands in the summer of 1989, and they played a tour where they played shows in Moscow and in St. Petersburg. And apparently being there in Moscow during this time at the end of the Cold War was a, a profoundly moving experience for them because the story goes that after the concert, uh, Klaus Mina, isn't that a great name? He's the, the lead singer of the Scorpions. Klaus Mina was so just moved by what he was experiencing in this sense that, that something was fomenting and, um, in, in the USSR. He wrote this song called The Wind of Change. And the wind of change, you would probably recognize it if you heard it. I'm not going to sing it for you, but uh, you can look it up later. Uh, the, the wind of change is this song that describes, it's kind of this power ballad, and uh, it, it becomes this anthem of, of freedom and change, especially in Eastern Europe. Um, it's it's kind of cheesy, but it describes this feeling that was palpable for many at the time, that freedom was kind of in the air and it was about to arrive. And so they write this song, and they, um, they record the song. It didn't actually get released until the spring of 1990, but just a few months after they played in uh, Moscow in uh, the summer of 1989, just a few months later in November of 1989, the Berlin Wall comes down, and the Soviet Union is crumbling, and the Cold War came to an end. And this song, The Wind of Change, if you were to go to much of Eastern Europe today and ask the average person under the age of about 50, have you ever heard of the Scorpions? They would say, oh yeah, I love their song, The Wind of Change. It just became this anthem for freedom, uh, especially across Eastern Europe. The Wind of Change, um, you might not like recognize that song, just by its title at least. But The Wind of Change was the 13th most um, popular single in the pre-digital era. So that means that it, it sold more copies worldwide than anything you've listened to in a decade. Uh, just massively, massively popular because it captured this feeling, uh, this sense that freedom was in the air. It's a song about freedom. It's a song about this band who's experienced freedom, and because they've experienced freedom growing up in West Germany, uh, they wanted to bring it to those who did not yet experience freedom for themselves. This morning, as we continue our study in First Peter, we are looking at this book, which was really this manual for how to live the Christian life in a hostile and chaotic world, and we come to this really important passage. Peter has been laying this foundation in the first chapter and a half of the book where he has talked about our identity, who we are in Christ, that we are exiles. 
And then he's gone on to talk about the way that that gospel identity is like our gospel DNA bears the gospel fruit of holiness. And then we saw last week that as we live lives of holiness as exiles in this world, we don't do this on our own, but we're called to live life together as the church. And now he begins to sort of turn to specifics and apply it and say, okay, now because those are true, your identity, your holiness, your togetherness, this is what the Christian life looks like. What does it look like to live the life of faith in a culture that is not friendly to our views or beliefs? Beliefs. What does it look like to live as a Christian in a world that has grown cynical? And so he says here in verse 16, live as people who are free. Embrace your freedom in Christ. And this is incredibly helpful and I think timely instruction for us in 2020 in the United States because as you know, we are living through a time that is incredibly chaotic. Um, we, we are living through a time that feels as, where our, our culture feels as divided as it ever has. I mean, think about some of the, the issues that are kind of cultural, political flashpoints in our world. And what I want you to think about or notice is that they all come back to the issue of freedom and personal autonomy. I mean, these are some of the things that become politicized and polarized in our, in, our, um, in our culture. Wearing a mask in public for some is an issue of freedom and autonomy. Um, free speech, there is an enormous debate about free speech going on in our culture. And this gets at everything from cancel culture to, uh, you may have seen a couple prominent writers of the New York Times, journalists at the New York Times resigned a couple weeks ago um, and, and pointed pretty, pretty um, sharp criticism at what is in many ways a, a liberal-leaning uh, publication saying that, that freedom of speech is no longer reality at, uh, at the New York Times. There was a, uh, I read an article this week by David Brooks who in this article quoted a statistic. He said 62% of Americans say that they are afraid to share the things that they believe. Uh, so free speech is being limited not really through legal action but through public shaming. And Americans are afraid that to say what they believe will bring uh, stigma. Issues of race are framed really on both sides as issues of freedom. And so this passage that we're looking at today really could not be more timely or relevant for us because the questions surrounding freedom and how best to protect and ensure our freedom are quite literally tearing us apart as people. Tearing us apart. And so, friends, I want you to hear what this passage says because what it tells us uh, is spectacular. What this passage is going to do, if, if we really understand what this passage says, if you understand this passage, you will understand what's going on in our culture. Uh, I mean, that's, I know that's a huge statement, but it's true. If you understand this passage, you will now be able to make sense of the world that you're living in. But more than that, if you take this passage to heart, it will help you be a person who can live with a levity and a sense of lightness, um, freedom in Christ in the midst of a world that is going crazy. Because what this passage 
is going to help us understand is that our culture has made a fundamental mistake in all of these conversations about what freedom is. Our culture is fundamentally mistaken about what freedom is, and so our arguments over how to guarantee freedom are doomed to fail as we are experiencing because we have incorrectly defined freedom. Because our culture only assumes that freedom can be defined in the negative. If you ask anybody what freedom is um, in our world today, they say, well, freedom is the absence of restraint. It's a negative definition of freedom. Freedom is not having things in my life that hold me back. We might give the small caveat every once in a while that freedom is the, the ability to do whatever I want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. But even that small caveat that our freedom is restricted by not hurting others still leaves us with a negative definition of freedom, the absence of restraint. And so even right now, we think that the problem is that somebody else is prohibiting me from living the sort of life that I want to live, and it's tearing us apart. And so what I want you to see in this passage are two incredibly important and life-giving truths. So first, what is freedom? And then how do we actually experience it? What freedom really is, if our culture defines freedom in the negative, what does the Bible actually tell us that freedom is? Well, listen to verse 16. Peter says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Did you catch what he said there? <laughs> there are two astounding things about the way that he defines freedom there. Uh, the first thing that's astounding is, as soon as Peter has told us to live free in Christ, he immediately assumes that freedom can be used as an excuse to hurt other people. That should tell us a lot about the way that we live. But the second thing he tells us is this, live as people who are free, and then at the end of the verse, live as servants of God. Live as people who are free, live as servants of God. Those are two parallel statements that mean the same thing, right? To live as a free person is to live as a servant of God. What in the world is he talking about? How can we be both free and a servant of God at the same time? That's the crux of the issue. Here's an astounding fact that I, I spent a lot of time actually researching this this week. Every single time the New Testament encourages us to live as free in Christ, it immediately follows that freedom, that kind of exhortation to freedom up by instructing us to live as the servant of God or as other people. Every single time. I mean, a couple of examples. Romans 6 but now that you have been set free from sin, you have become slaves of God. 1 Corinthians 7, Likewise, he who, has been who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Galatians 5.13, I think the, uh, the classic statement on Christian freedom says, For you were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Every single time the Bible talks about our freedom in Christ, it tells us that our freedom is expressed through service to God or service to other human beings. And that makes no sense if our culture's definition of freedom 
is true, that freedom is the absence of restraint. So what in the world is the Bible talking about? Listen, this is what we have to understand. In the Bible, freedom is never connected to license, but it is always connected to virtue. Freedom is never about doing whatever you want. It's about leveraging what you have for the sake of others. In the Bible, freedom does not mean escape from service. It means a change of master. Okay, freedom does not mean escaping from service. It means changing who your master is. Because the Bible assumes that every single one of us has to live for something. And as soon as you decide what it is you're going to live for, that person or that thing becomes your de facto master. So the person who's driven to achieve financial freedom becomes a slave to their job. Or the person who is driven to achieve uh, the freedom of love is a slave to their partner's whims. Even the person who says something like, I am not going to let anybody else tie me down. I'm an independent person. I'm a free person. I go where I want to go. I live wherever I want to live. I'm with whoever I want to be with. Um, as soon as things get serious, I move on. Even this person is a slave who is laboring under restrictions. You say, how could that be? Well, if you're this sort of person, you're restricting yourself from relationships. You're restricting yourself from commitment. You're just restricting yourself from being tied down. See, no, no matter what you say is the ultimate thing in your life, that thing becomes your de facto master. Everyone has to live for something. And whatever you choose to live for brings inherent restrictions with it. I mean, think about the reality that when you fall in love, on the one hand, you, you, you feel completely free. Your love for your beloved is empowering and life-giving. And yet it also requires commitment. It requires placing restrictions. To love this person means to not love several billion other people. Everybody has to live for something, and whatever you live for or whoever you live for brings restrictions uh, with it. And so freedom, in the truest sense, is not getting rid of restrictions. It's rather choosing the, the restrictions that bring life. If you go to the doctor, and the doctor looks at you and does tests and checks your heart rate and all this kind of stuff, and the doctor says, if you continue living this way, things are not going to go well for you. So you need to get on this diet. You might respond and say, that's a really restrictive way to live. And the doctor would say, it's less restrictive than death. <laughs> you know, uh, you, can, you can choose to look at a diet as something that's going to kill you, or you can look at it as the restrictions that bring life. And so freedom in the biblical sense is serving the one as ultimate who is able to give you life. The Bible assumes that you're going to serve someone, and the only way to truly be free is to serve the one true God, to give yourself to the only master who can give you real life. This is woven throughout this whole letter where Peter shows us what freedom is like. He says that, um, in verse 11, he says that when we serve the living and true God, we are set free from our passions. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? Um, we think that our passions are the thing. This is what I'm really passionate about. This is what I want to do. 
what 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 the Bible says is is there are these these epi desires. Desire is good, but an epi desire, a controlling desire, an over desire, uh, what's translated the word passion here. It's like an addiction, something that we have so given ourselves to that it becomes controlling in our lives. Peter says when we follow Christ above all, that we have the power to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which he says wage war against your soul. In verses 18 through 25, he says that we are set free from sin and death and evil. He says that we are set free from the tyranny of self-absorption, being consumed with ourselves. Later in chapter 5, he says that we are set free from captivity to our negative emotions, that they don't have to control us. In 1 Peter 5, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Not like suck it up, get it together, stop worrying because God, whatever. No, God cares for you. He says God loves you. He, he is watching over you. You have someone to serve and Jesus invites you into a life of freedom, serving the only master who can truly bring you life. He cares for you. He takes your burdens upon himself. He gives you his life in exchange for your death. And that gives you freedom. It allows you to breathe light and easy. So let me ask you, are you experiencing that sort of levity in this, this moment that we're living through? Would you say that there is a lightness about the way that you're living your life as if... Uh, I, I was remembering yesterday a, something a friend of mine said on Facebook a couple of years ago. She said, my favorite memory from childhood is not paying bills. You know, the idea that, like, as a kid, I, I, my kids live with such levity because they have no idea the number of things that they don't have to worry about. Are you living with the kind of lightness of a person who knows that you have a father who's got everything under control? I'm guessing, like me, the answer, you would answer no to that question. So the second thing that I want you to see in this passage is how to really experience Christian freedom. The reality, I think, is that none of us is actually experiencing the freedom that God is promising here. So if we're sitting here saying, I believe the Bible is true in theory, so I guess these words are true, but I'm not experiencing this sort of freedom in my actual life, what do we do? Well, there are two answers to that question. The first is that you need to look to Jesus. And the second is that you need to use your freedom to give your life away to others. So firstly, I guess this is point 2A, if you want to be really tight in your outline. <laughs> look to Jesus. This whole idea that freedom is not about casting off our restrictions, but rather giving ourselves wholly to God, is so counter to our nature that we will never just begin to do this on our own, on our own strength. And so Peter explains 
the gospel reality in terms of what Jesus has done for us. He shows us that Jesus, who is God in the flesh, I mean, think about what that means. That means that Jesus is the most free human being to ever walk the planet. Jesus is the embodiment of freedom. But he doesn't use his freedom for self-indulgence. Rather, he, he gives away his freedom and submits himself to the will of God the Father, and he ultimately submits to an unjust death. Listen to what Peter says in verses 22 and 23. It says, Jesus, he committed, him, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's what freedom looks like. Um, Jesus entrusting himself to God the Father. So that even when he is unjustly punished, Jesus says, my Father's got this under control. Even Jesus made himself a servant of God, and because he entrusted himself to God, even as he suffered the greatest injustice known to humanity, he didn't resist the shackles of death, but willingly embraced them. But he did that, Peter says, both um, as an example, but he also did it in your place. Look at the rest of that passage, 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. On the cross, Jesus takes your place. He takes your sin, he takes your death, he gives you life in exchange. The one who is truly free becomes a slave in order to set you free from slavery to sin and death. And when that reality grabs hold of your life and you believe it, not just as an abstract truth, but it, as it actually warms your heart and you embrace the true freedom that comes from knowing that God is the one who defends you, then you will truly be free. Experience true freedom by looking to Jesus. But the second thing, point to B, I guess, is that we experience true freedom by giving our lives away. There is this deep irony that we don't experience freedom when we hoard it for ourselves. Or when, like Peter warns against, when we use freedom as an excuse for evil or for self-indulgence. I mean, this, you can't really miss this reality in, in, the, in this whole passage. Peter's talking about our freedom, but, but did you notice he's especially talking about our freedom in the way that we interact with the government? You know, he's referencing uh, the emperor, the governor. And in order to really think about what he's talking about, you have to understand, who are these emperors and governors that he's talking about? These are not democratically elected people. Uh, the emperor at the time was either Claudius or Nero. Nero, if Nero was the emperor at the time Peter's writing here, he hadn't fully come up with the idea of using Christians as candlesticks uh, yet, but he wasn't far from it. 
these were not people with whom we differ on political philosophy. These were dictators and tyrants. And Peter says over and over and over again, his clear instruction is that Christians are to use our freedom to obey, even to the point of suffering injustice. And I think the reality that Peter's pointing us to is that we often experience the sweetness of the gospel in contrast to the cruelty of the world. But when we spend so much time defending ourselves, we fail to experience God as the one who is our defender. We experience the freedom that Christ gives us when we use our freedom not to indulge ourselves, but to give our freedom away, give our lives away for the sake of others. Listen to what Peter says here. I think this is verse 12. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. That's a remarkable statement. I mean, have you ever asked the question, I wonder what God's will is for me? I mean, anybody who grew up in a Christian youth group asked that question a lot. What's God's will for my job or who I should marry? Peter says this definitively. Do you know what God's will for you is? It's to silence fools. (laughs) That's amazing, but how are you going to silence them? Not, Not through pointing out the stupidity of their views on the internet. Not by tearing them apart. You're going to silence fools not by complaining about the injustice of, injustice of government overreach. You're going to silence fools by living a life of freedom, by doing good, by using your freedom to serve others. Uh, I think there is this, this moment in parenting that... Um, Every parent experiences, if you have more than one child, where, where there's this argument that is going on between two of your children. They come to you, well, he hit me. Well, she did this. Well, he started it with that. And you kind of get six layers deep into this, and you're like, I'm not even going to try to like untangle all of this, but you just need to grow up. The problem is that your six- and eight-year-old look back at you, and they're like, but I'm a child. I can't grow up. But I think that there's a little bit of that reality here in what in what... Peter's saying that we're not going to put to silence ignorant ideas, ignorant foolishness, by like correctly parsing out who did what and why to everybody else. That the key to silencing foolishness is by growing up into who we are in Christ, by doing good that saps the power of the foolish ideas. Experiencing the freedom that comes from a master who died to give you life and now perfectly and now lives to protect you perfectly so you can give, use your freedom to give your life away for the sake of others. Because here is the reality. Freedom is a really great rallying cry. You know, whether it's William Wallace or, or the Scorpions, I guess, <laughs> in Eastern Europe in the late 80s. Freedom is a great rallying cry, but freedom is a terrible victory. Um, It's a terrible reward. It's a terrible thing to hoard. 
Because when freedom is something that we hoard and try to protect, it makes us petty. It makes us self-centered. And so we experience true freedom, the Bible says, by using our freedom to give our lives away for others. Okay, I started this sermon talking about the scorpions and this song, The Wind of Change, and how this song became this anthem of freedom, in, uh, especially in Europe. And motivated by this song, you know, millions and millions of people bought copies. They passed tapes hand to hand um, to the extent that this, this song is, is still like the anthem of freedom for many in, in the Ukraine and in the former USSR. But I left out the best part of the story. Because the, the best part of the story is that there is a theory... Some might call it a conspiracy theory, but there's at least some evidence that it could be true. There's a, there's a theory that that song was actually written by the CIA, which is just amazing, isn't it? <laughs> that it was a psychological operation executed by the CIA at this time when the Cold War is kind of coming to its climax to insert this song into the USSR to stoke the desire for freedom that was already beginning to take hold uh, in the USSR. Now, if you're really interested, there's a great podcast called The Wind of Change that you can listen to. Um, I, I feel like I do need to say, it, like, it might not be true. <laughs> I don't know if it's true. All I can say for certain is that there, there's one person who worked for the CIA who definitely believed it was true. But regardless of whether or not the story is true, it's a great story. And, and there's a couple reasons why I love that story. I love that story because I love the idea that the thing that finally toppled a state dictatorship was not military might or power, but influence, persuasion, Soft power, not coercion or the use of force. I think that's what Peter is encouraging us to when he says that you will silence the ignorance of fools by doing good. Not by winning, but by just being who God has called you to be. But more than that, I love that story because it displays a beautiful reality that freedom is best used to serve others, not to indulge ourselves. You are loyal servants in God's kingdom, which means that you are entirely free to honor other people, though this freedom is not a license to grab power or to degrade others. So friends, let me just finish by quoting this summary statement in the midst of this passage. Christians, embrace your freedom in Christ. Honor everyone. Love the people of God. Fear God and honor the emperor. Would you pray with me? Oh Jesus, we thank you that as you so often do, you turn our expectations upside down. We come to this topic of Christian freedom and it turns out what you're inviting us into is something so countercultural that it's 
hard for us to get our minds around it. Jesus, you tell us that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And that following you is the path to true freedom. That's not anything like what our world says. I pray that um, we would be just daring enough to believe that it's actually true. Thank you, Jesus, that you don't just tell us to turn our lives over to you, but you actually modeled the way for us. We thank you for your life, for your death, for your resurrection, for your humble submission to God. Thank you for the way that that transforms our existence. And I pray that the good news of the gospel would transform us and make us truly free people. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.